Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Britney Spears Court Update. Snapchat changes. And post-pandemic genres. You're listening to The Biz Tape. to episode 44 of the biz tape you're all things music business and media podcast i'm your host colin mckay with my co-host joseph wazaleski joe Hello. how are we doing today i'm doing great colin i got i got a new shirt on you can't see it if you're listening to the audio but yes youtube you can see it on youtube facebook twitter possibly at the biz tape we're the biz tape podcast that's perfect like the like it you right like that there. plug yeah, also TikTok. TikTok has been really oh, fun yeah, we to have explore a on the podcast scene. So anyway, yeah, everything is getting real weird with the pandemic now because like we're out of it or not out of it. Like it's very strange. So yeah. a lot of our stories today are about that weird in between gray area yeah, where we're like we're you know we're vaccinated so we can go do stuff but it's like you got to be careful because the Delta variant is the Delta variant. Yeah. So it's definitely weird to navigate for a lot of people, especially, well, first off, let's talk about the families, Joe, Don, you know, fast and furious family. <laughs> anyway, uh, so family tours, why am I talking about family tours? Because family tours make a lot of money and they have a very interesting problem because of the pandemic, basically. So first off, I want to give you an idea about how much money family tours make. Because it's insane. <laughs> and it, just so we're clear, family tour, I'm thinking family like JoJo Siwa. Yes, perfect. Like, okay. Like I'll give you a couple the, acts. The Jojo Wiggles. Siwa. Yeah, that would be another one. Do the Wiggles tour? The Wiggles do tour. Wow. They we got to go see great, them. <laughs> they have some great Tame Impala covers, which is the weirdest <laughs> thing to say in the world, but they do. Um, yeah, so the family-friendly tours pro- probably should have specified anything that you know you can bring your kids to, the parents can watch, usually like kid-centric content. Yeah. So according to the figures reported to Billboard box score, Blippi, who's a big YouTube uh, child, family-friendly YouTuber, sold 10,000 tickets and grossed $406,000 over February and March of 2020, so pre-pandemic, just before the shutdown. Darcy Lynn, who is a twin ventriloquist and Americans got talent winner, sold 23,000 tickets and made $1 million in just... 11 shows in 2018 and 2019. And then the queen of all of this, Jojo Siwa made nearly $27 million with $506,000 ticket sale or 506,000 ticket sales in North America two years ago. So it's insane. It's, you know, rivaling big shows, but billboard does put a caveat that the ticket prices are low, but 
here's the thing. The cost of the shows are super low. Yeah. So the profitability, as Billboard says, is insane for a lot of these people who are working on the crew and producing this kind of content. Now, why is that the case? Um, I think it's barrier to entry needs to be low because you have to think maybe if you are a parent, you have multiple children, you have to buy multiple tickets, for instance. Mm -hmm. Also, it is family-friendly content, which... A lot of it is seen as free in a lot of ways now when it comes to the content that would be on that stage. We're not talking about maybe like an animated movie or something, but like you can go see Blippi's clips, for example, for free on YouTube. Yeah. So it's kind of a hard sell to be like, pay to see this guy live. Also, you have to transport all your children here, make sure they're safe and everything. And so it's a lot. So that's what they're trying to do is keep the barrier to entry down. But what about the cost of the productions? Why are those so low? So it's because a lot of it is to tracks. A lot of it is just a a lot of choreography. And a lot of the time, more reminiscent of a play in Mm. the way of it's just a lot of speaking. So that's less backline. Jojo Siwa up there doing Hamlet. Right. (laughs) Or Macbeth. So that's a lot less, you know, backline. That's a lot less gear. I mean, they are doing stadiums sometimes, so that's still a giant PA and amplifier systems. But in terms of that, you're cutting down a lot there. And then the crews are smaller a lot of the time. So that that just all comes together in that way. They're trying for high volume as opposed to selling just an amount of tickets at at the right price, basically. So, and again, this is also part of the long game for them too because you have to think about if they have more children at their shows that's more fans who go back to their other places and child child merch is crazy and an yeah. insane market so at the end of the day sometimes the show even more so than we joke about on the show is for the marketing of the merch hmm. so yeah so that's kind of a pretty good all-around thing what's going on and an explanation of family shows so very profitable and then COVID hits. Obviously, we're all off tours. Everybody's like, let's go take a break. And now we're back. But the weird part about it is that for most under 12s, you can't get vaccinated. So for a lot of these people, it's up in the air about taking their children to these shows, which makes sense. I mean, if you're a parent, I, one of the things I listed before, which I was talking more about pre-pandemic, is safety especially if, it, if you have a lot of young children that you're in charge of and you're taking them to a show, then you got to worry about this disease. Yeah. Um, again, a lot of critics basically were talking about also that, you know, there's a lot of precautions that have been in place and also the less likelihood for children under 12 to get COVID, but it's a big deal. So we're seeing, quote, some ticket buyers for events later in the year, whether they're thinking about their kids or safety in general, are saying, I'm going to wait till October to see how COVID is going. And I'm not going to buy the tickets in July. And that was uh, Chip McLean, Senior VP and GM of Disney Concerts Worldwide. The best name ever. That's pretty good. Chip McLean. Yeah. That's amazing. And he's making it in. He's the Senior VP and GM of Disney Concerts. So this man's making bank mr mclean that sounds great right so but he he brings up a good point is that it's fundamentally changed the ticket structure as well even more so for family shows because of that vaccine and lack of vaccines available for the under 12 so then we also have a lot of tours that have basically tried to make sure that it's approachable and feel safe to their clientele specifically toting an NBA style bubble for the crew to keep them, you know, all vaccinated and only with the other vaccinated people as to not spread the virus by the tour itself as opposed to the gathering. So that's like one thing that was toted by a lot of critics. And then we're, you know, again, back to the other thing is a lot of under 12 children have a less likely chance of getting COVID due to a lot of studies we've seen and stuff. So that's also been toted by a lot of these tours to try to mitigate people who have this fear of it. But at the end of the day, I think what's happening with this market, which I think is interesting and we can talk about right here is the impact of buying these tickets last minute. Mm -hmm. And so let's think about it. Like you're selling tickets, you're a live nation and we're trying to figure out, well, you know, this show might not be doing so well. 
Maybe we should just cancel the show. We got to bring it. The production costs are low, but they're not zero. Mm-hmm. So if we have more hesitancy to that, should we just cancel it? Or should we have in the future, because we know people are hesitant about it, should we have less shows planned in general, even before tickets get bought and maybe take areas and regions and combine them together? So instead of going to like, for instance, in our region, like a Nashville, Chattanooga, Atlanta, okay, we have one show in Atlanta instead because we know people are hesitant about this and are saying, well, I don't know, maybe we won't buy the tickets. So that just changes the entire thing right there. That also changes a lot of planning for production. We have to talk about all these techs that are working there. Well, you know, we don't know about the ticket sales yet. We want to keep this low because that's our business model in the first place pre-pandemic. Why don't we cut like a, you know, one of these techs? Maybe we don't need, you know, an extra roadie, that kind of thing. So this is where it gets into interesting territory with this because like, you know, shows still exist, but the way going into them is very, very strange to do. Um, Also, we have to talk about children and family shows in general. I mean, under underestimating that entire region in my life. Like I was reading that and I was like, really? $27 million Jojo Siwa? <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a huge market, especially, uh, a lot of these acts when they're living on YouTube too, especially like, I mean, it's one of the biggest changes to YouTube, right? Was because children, the marketing uh, of, uh, the marketing to children yes. and, and how the FCC they, regulates it. Exactly. Because uh, to be honest, these, these kids were making, millions millions and millions of dollars and still some of them are so it's like it it is it is kind of an untapped like entertainment thing i feel like i don't i don't know if like the whole entertainment community is really really understands the value of it yet yeah because not only are you having yourself a uh, a child star uh, or child brand that is doing particularly well it can actually transferred to adulthood i mean we've seen it with hannah montana well it's weird and like you know like you're saying it is derivative from that kind of disney channel starlet or star coming up but it seems like the game because of the way social media is because kids are born into social media it's younger and younger yeah i i think it always it's always been young ages i think it's just new medium if that makes sense. But I, I understand what you're saying with like, um, who's the kid on YouTube that, that like, it's like Ryan's toys or yes, something. Ryan's toys review. Yeah. Ryan's toys He's one review. Of the top preferred. Ads Isn't he like seven or something? Yeah. Yeah. So that's crazy to me. That's yeah. insane. So like, but, here's but the Jojo deal. Siwa is like, you know, she's around the age of, she's of Miley 18, Cyrus. Think, when, right? 18, yeah. 19. Um, but what I'm saying is like, it's interesting to me to see the difference that social media has on these stars coming up because I do agree with you. It seems like in general for a very long time, we've had a huge emphasis in our culture about young people and young starlets and stuff, but I've never seen, we've never, for instance, had like a celebrity's baby that was on television. And then we're like, we're going to follow this baby like nationally everywhere. And we're going to fall in from one to two to three to four. I mean, paparazzi, but not mm-hmm. to the same le- level of exposure, in my opinion, that Instagram provides when people have Instagram for their children, yeah. for instance. So these stars are like, well, it also seems a little strange. I, I feel like be- being a, a, a char, like a star as a child is, is stressful in itself, but also a lot of these kids, I feel like don't even have that much of a say in whether or not they become a star. You yeah, know what I mean? Right. It's kind of hard to be like, you're an active participant in choosing to be, well, wow, but you were choosing to be a uh, star at six years old. Like you actively made that choice. Yeah. I mean, they, right? they could have made that choice, but they're not an adult. They, they will never understand the gravity of the situation. Of the situation. And, being a seven-year-old and having paparazzi trying to find you is uh, not great, right? Honestly, oh. I'm wondering too, like the laws of paparazzi with children, with child stars in particular. Yeah, which is another thing about it. I mean, they're ruthless, as we talked about a couple episodes with Dua Lipa, completely ruthless. Yeah, but uh, 
Yeah, I'll have to look into that. I'm not sure if it's like illegal to go after a kid. I like want to end it with this because we were talking about the difference between you as a consumer, as an adult, buying a ticket for yourself or maybe your other friend or significant other that's also an adult versus buying a ticket for your child. Mm-hmm. Like the like, like for instance, the likelihood to go to something you don't care about if for your child is exponential compared to you just buying a ticket that you're not really pumped about. Um, so I asked our, our asked our fan base. I said uh, on Instagram, I said, if you do have or you're hypothetically, let's say you hypothetically had children, would you be more hesitant to bring them to a concert due to COVID concerns compared to you attending alone? And sixty five percent said yes, they would be more hesitant when it comes to their children bringing them to a concert than just themselves, which I think is pretty substantial because, you know, obviously at the end of the day, people think about themselves, but their children is a completely different level of different types of consumers buying it. And so that's also, and I'll end it on this, why I think the money in it is so high is because at the end of the day, the kids aren't buying these tickets, their parents are. Mm-hmm. So the kids say they want it. Their parents will hopefully, if they're good parents, do anything they can to you know make their child happy. And if this is a thing, then this is what they're going to do. But at the cost of COVID, that's a question for everyone to answer to themselves. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, it, we're going to have to wait and see. I feel like with how this Delta variant, especially, is is going to impact yeah the touring industry as a whole, because um, it is like I've already seen cancellations of shows due to it. So, uh, I'm wondering, I don't want to knock on wood. Hopefully it doesn't happen. Uh, but I'm wondering if, if, if things are going to maybe not screech to a complete hole like we did last time, but there's going to be certain be areas. Cautious. Yeah. It's going to be cautious and maybe it's going to take a longer time for these family events to come into, you know, the full fruition that it had before. Right. And so. the idea of it. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safty, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public. The list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if that sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Hi there. I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. 
This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Speaking of uh, family-friendly shows, uh, what are some (laughs) artists that you think are family-friendly, Colin? Um, Skrillex. Yeah, that's it. (laughs) Me and 2010 Call of Duty would agree with you. Dead Mouse, Skrillex. The good stuff. So, moving it what completely is, to the other side of the world. <laughs> what is EDM's state post pandemic? So, there was a really interesting article that I found on Polestar and it interviewed um, high level executives that um, are in charge of like the EDM market essentially and like, uh, and, and how they've, how, how has this market in particular shifted, grown, and what are some things that they're seeing and some trends that they're seeing essentially? Mm-hmm. So, although the pandemic slowed touring growth last year, EDM artists were some of the first to completely shift towards a palpable online format that allowed them to continue their brand and create more demand to see them in a live capacity. Yeah. So, as the industry reopens and more and more people begun buying tickets to shows, the EDM genre had some of the highest grossing ticket numbers in comparison to many others in the live entertainment sphere. So, why is this the case? Firstly, artists and their teams in the genre are able to quickly book and perform shows due to their lack of moving parts. And all of the artists really need is a decent mix, a decent setup, and most dance clubs have the infrastructure to handle a lot more on stage with lighting and imaging and all that stuff. Can I say I've mixed a couple of DJs with a full lighting rig before? It is infinitely easier to do. Oh, yeah. Do they show up with like graphics on hand and stuff? Depends like, on what kind of show it is. If it's like a show that has a DJ, like it's more of like, oh, a DJ is playing at this club. Um, like it's an afterthought, then no. But yeah. if it's their show or they're literally on the bill, then they do have. That's different. So, yeah. so there's that's actually interesting you bring that up because uh, the discussion also, uh, this came up, it was like hard ticketing versus soft ticketing. So if you don't know what hard ticketing is, hard ticketing is like when you actually have your own show and you have to promote it, essentially. So like, I'm playing at Exit Inn this night. Here are the tickets to my show. Versus I'm playing Bonnaroo and I have a bunch of other artists and people are just going to show up anyways. That's what a soft ticket is, essentially. Okay. So... It came up, uh, and these professionals that they interviewed seem to agree that hard ticketing is actually becoming more popular as acts begun to build their begin to build their fan base on the road, as well as the current demand for music. So, as one professional put it, it's hard not to sell out a show these days. So, a lot of artists, essentially, that were soft ticket artists before, you know, just playing like Vegas clubs or something, are now able to do hard tickets. Oh, okay. And so they're able to make more money off of off of uh, those shows. So going back to the production element of it, uh, with the increased demand and turnaround of many of these productions, uh, costs of productions have actually gone up. Mm-hmm. So um, and and by by that I mean like if you're actually doing a, a huge show with like a bunch of lights, you have you have like a rigging director, you have like all these teams of people, right, to do this stuff. It's going to cost exponentially more than it would have probably, you know, last year. But it seems to me that a lot of these artists are at the point where they would need that in well, terms of Well, see, that's interesting. I actually don't think that they need it. Cuz to be honest, I think the demand for music is so high, people are willing to just go see music. So, I I do agree with you. But in this way of having so many shows, how are you going to stand out from the rest of the shows? Well, that's true. You Now, a Steve Aoki is going to be significantly more expensive. Correct. I'm than, just talking about more of maybe if you're... Maybe if you're trying, you're a younger artist, you're trying to hard ticket for maybe the first or second time or earlier in your career, and 
you are on the bill, like a way of advertising. It could be, oh, I have it said this venue, it's sweet. It's got a whole lighting rig and video walls and stuff. So you guys can, you know, because EDM is dance. It's dance music. It's mm-hmm. in the name. So I feel like that could be very important to that crowd. But I, I agree with you. It is exponential from seeing the cost of... It, it's not as much of a linear straight up line of being like my show is getting better per dollar. And when you get up to like giant lighting rigs that expensive and also, also just giant PAs, like it's not, it's not, there's a place where that kind of starts to falter off Mm -hmm. for a lot of people. Like when you first get a real mixing engineer and a real system engineer and a real LD, Oh yeah. Huge difference. But if it's like, my LD has gotten, you know, got an M2 now instead of the, you know, what was it? The, uh, one You're of the speaking in consoles. tongues to me yeah. right now. Anyway, I'm just trying to say <laughs> that the console is better. The lighting director has a better like lighting console. It's not going to be to the crowd, like an exponential different level yeah. because it comes down to more of the people operating it than it does the equipment. Sometimes I think it comes down to expectation too. So like some of these acts starting out, people aren't going to expect them to be, uh, I keep, bringing it back to Steve Aoki, but Steve Aoki level productions, right. right? Where it's like insane lighting. It's you got, you got flames, you got a bunch of confetti. I do got, have to agree though, that the nightclub scene and the places that a lot of these EDM artists come up is very equipped or equipped to handle it. Oh, absolutely. Compared and, to a lot of other and venues. It, what's interesting is a lot of these venues that normally are soft ticket are actually starting to hard ticket as well. Yeah. I think, I think it. I, w- I was going to add on to that that this is really a show of how EDM has come a very long way into the mainstream. Mm-hmm. Before you know, we were at this point where a couple years ago, it was it was there was electronic music, and then there were subsections of electronic music. I would almost compare it to the way metal is in the way that it's like metal. And then there's a lot of subsections of metal and people were all in these different camps. They were like, really like house music. I really like dubstep. I really like, you know, like all these different kind of genres and they were all in their little camps and it had their fan base. And now because it's exploded so much and people have really gravitated onto it, the fusion of all those genres has been so huge that it's become a lot more palatable in my opinion to a lot of people to get into it Mm -hmm. it doesn't seem like you have to have some prior knowledge or like understand that this is just the tools of the trade you know this is just how this genre works so if you don't like it whatever um it it definitely is the reason in my opinion that the hard ticketing has become such a success for edm because i feel like it's become so much more mainstream because of that ability of it to get away from being so subsectioned off yeah, and not having, wait, if we're talking about versus soft ticketing, you got to have, you know, you would hope soft ticketing. I would imagine if you were booking it, you would have a well-rounded cast of people that, Oh, this guy does this kind of, you know, maybe does this kind of EDM music. This person does this kind of EDM music. And then we'll get different crowds of people that like that. But now it's like, Oh, an EDM show. Well, I just like EDM in all forms. So that's, that's what I think is amazing about watching this genre on the come up. And, uh, they compared to a lot of genres, I would say are on the forefront of having, organic internet success when yeah, it comes absolutely. their fan base is innately well more and that's, educated on the internet. That's one of the works. reasons why I think it's blown up so much more is because this has actually gained an they, they had an opportunity during the pandemic to increase the uh their fan bases. Also whereas other genres didn't. They didn't have the same the same opportunity necessarily because their genre of music is so much easier to move online. Also I I took away completely the palatability. You know, I was talking about all these subgenres. EDM is mostly, you know, for is mostly not verbal. So there's not a lot of language barrier for a lot of EDM artists. Yeah. I mean, for majority of the song, a lot of people don't have vocals and if they do, it's very minimal. And mm-hmm. if they do have full vocals with an EDM track, it's not, you know, the lyrics aren't really that much of a focus. So not to say if you're an EDM artist, you don't have good lyrics. It's just more of, it's not the forefront. You know, if you go see a singer songwriter, you're sitting there like on every word, 
But on EDM, it's like, I'm it's here all for about the, that bass drop, right, baby. <laughs> exactly. So that's also why it's so palatable. It, it breaks, uh, you know, if it's really big on the internet, which it is because their fan base is really educated into the internet, it can go worldwide and be global because it doesn't have that level of uh, gatekeeping that just comes naturally from different languages. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think that more and more acts are going to have to convert their touring method? Since, I mean, it seems to be working so, for EDM. So it depends on how you mean convert. I definitely think if you're an EDM artist, the ability, like... I, I think the thing, for the, me at least, is is how easy it is to to tour as an EDM artist. Right. Like it's, maybe it's you and like well, four other people. Yeah. It's still hard in the way that you're on the road and stuff, but like in the essence of like, you know, because I've worked for a production company for a while, when you have a full band, you got to make sure you got the full drum kit. You got to go all the guitars, all these the different pieces of gear and all that stuff. At the end of the day, you take away most of that. You got your deck that you're playing on and your laptop. Or some of them USB stick. Right. <laughs> So you got all of that almost minimal enough to two tracks. The most important thing about it, in my opinion, if you want to know the truth, if you're an EDM artist or someone who's not as, in, you know, using instruments as much, is you got to have a really good system, and mm -hmm. a, and better yet, you have to have a good system engineer. So someone who's tuned the system, and that is exponentially out of your crew, in my opinion, compared to instrumental music. It's still important in instrumental music. Don't get me wrong, but that's so much more important because you have a lot of control in the tracks that you have that are mixed to an extent and mastered to an extent. The mixing engineer in a live sense has to kind of has to do that on the fly. Yeah. But since you have control of this, these tracks and the recordings that you're taking from or sampling from, uh, you eliminate a lot of what the mixer has to do. And honestly, it can be a little bit, in my opinion, if you go as a mixing engineer and start messing around with a bunch of things and you're not like the guy's mixing engineer, you're like just the venue. You're just like, Oh, okay, give me the tracks. And you just start like putting different things. And that, in my opinion, kind of messes with their message. But if you're trying to tune the tracks for their system, so like, you know, you're making the speakers really pop with bass and all that kind of stuff. That's different. And that's a big difference in EDM. So if you're looking at electronic music or an electronic artist or a pop artist that uses a lot of electronic music, I'm telling you right now, the system engineer, whoever that is, whatever club you're playing at, is arguably the most important thing to your song and the success of it. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, 
Exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark, more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, Colin, moving on. Yeah, this is weird, but I'm just going to open up with it. You know how we joke about Snapchat every single time we talk about this podcast for some reason? Uh, It's doing pretty well. Damn. Damn. I think... There's a big change that's happening, and I think... Like a bad change? I don't think it's a bad change. I think it's a different change. That's what they all um, say. And I, Well, here's why. I think it would be bad in the short term, and that's why a lot of the CEO uh, talking about it that I'm going to read is phrased away, and I'll guide you through that. So first off, what do I mean by Snapchat's doing really good? (laughs) The company made $982 million in quarter two, and it's reached 293 million daily active users, which is very big. But the important part about it is that that's a 116% increase in revenue and a 26% increase in users. Wow. Which percentage-wise is really big. Um, also, they have decreased their net loss, which they had a net loss uh, before of $326 million in the previous year, and now it's at $152 million. So they've had that. Yeah. Um, an important distinction that I have to put in this is while the number of users viewing content on Snapchat has, has increased, time spent watching user-generated content has decreased year over year. And this is like my pinnacle thing that I think is going to be the changing part of Snapchat is that Snapchat, I think, is changing more towards content that's brought to the platform versus user-generated content in the way that it started. And are you, are you talking So user-generated mostly... content for this is if I send you a snap of me mm-hmm. and I send it directly to you, you seem you send me a foot pic, right? Like which, you normally do, right? Exactly. So, <laughs> you know, foot pic, I send it, and then you view it. That's user generated. It's my foot. Anyway, content <laughs> in terms of on Snapchat is when you go over to the stories, and it's all that stuff that's like Bahad Bahabi's original channel and Philip DeFranco's original <laughs> thing, and that's content that's put on the platform. And so, I think this is a very important distinction to lay out is how Snapchat's changing their model. And I think the problem with that is that advertisers will see it as a less interactive and growing base because Snapchat, in my opinion, is driven by users getting more users on the platform. And you'll see what I mean when the CEO talks about it. So the CEO basically said, He thinks this pattern is mostly due to the pandemic lowering the amount of content people wanted to create or snap and due to them being inside, which I think is true. But now doing the restrictions being lifted, Snapchat is, quote, cautiously optimistic they will lead to increased time spent watching stories from friends as the world begins to open up. Hmm. Cautiously optimistic. You You see how that is put there, in my opinion, to try to be like, if we're not right about this, we can <laughs> Then don't pivot. blame us. <laughs> yeah. So also interesting to note, which I think is important, we'll talk about, is Snapchat claims they have not been really affected by the Apple privacy setting changes that allow Apple users to opt out of many types of different data collecting, which is important if you don't know, because these apps, especially any social media, which I would qualify Snapchat as social media, it 
is driven by that data collection and using it to have advertisers target you mm-hmm. and other people in different demographics. Um, on a positive note, Snapchat is predicting in quarter three uh, a 50 to 60% increase in revenue and to reach 300 million users. So yeah, that's my main theory is that I really think that they are going to end up trying to transition to a creative like content platform and that the snapping part of it will go down. But in the short term, I think that that scares a lot of investors and advertisers because it makes it look like the app is going down in terms of users, new people, meaning if you bought an app on Snapchat, there's less people coming to the app because they're not attracted by their friends on the app. Mm -hmm. And then there's going to be less people in total to view your ad. Yeah. So that's, that's pretty much my theory about that. But I think that they kind of understand that, which is why I draw attention to cautiously optimistic. Yeah. Because I think they want to keep that door open unless they want to Pivot. pivot, which is different, but also opens up the platform a lot to content creators as opposed to people like you and me in terms of just like, wanting to be on the platform again if you're going to get views on Snapchat. Now, it's going to be risk to you because I think, again, that the way people get attracted to Snapchat currently is that your friend is on Snapchat or someone you know is on Snapchat and they want to send you a snap and they tell you about it. Yeah. Um, or, you know, if you don't know what Snap, if you know what Snapchat is, you get more attracted to it again because your friends are using it. But having that created content, it's going to be interesting to see what they dig deep more on because that could be more opportunity for creatives to come on the platform and kind of like what Netflix has to do in every other streaming service. They might have to up their content game if they focus on being more of a content company and so people are more attracted to it. Yeah, I think so for sure. You hit it on the the nail on the head where, where it's, a lot of I, I feel like the vast majority of people aren't there necessarily to be entertained. Like the, well, they are, but they're there to entertain, be entertained by their friends. In my opinion, I. But y- there is so much. Like I feel like there is literally you just kind of scroll on Snapchat and like there's like just thousands Snapchat, and thousands here, of. Here's stories. what I'll say: Snapchat had basically kind of what TikTok tries to do now, but in a way worse version four years ago, Mm -hmm. which was the aspect of seeing other people's snaps that were public and literally just it's filtered by kind of what you like, like TikTok, and it's kind of filtered by a category. And so it was, if you think about it, it's essentially kind of what people like about TikTok is that idea of being like, Oh, I can scroll through this topic that I like and different people's takes about it. Mm -hmm. And so they, I, I don't think they have a bad model there. It's just interesting to see if they're going to hold on to the older Snapchat model of having mailboxes in terms of like being like, that's the main thing. It would be like if TikTok and the messaging feature, they were like, okay, the following and the for you page is not our main thing. The main thing is for us just to message each other. You know how weird that would be? (laughs) Like, (laughs) I mean, I send a lot of TikToks. I do, but like, if you take the for you page out, then you got to make all the TikToks to send to your <laughs> yeah, friends, just which is what Snapchat is essentially. <laughs> Except you can't. That's really kind edit of the it. joy of Snapchat, though. I feel like it's missing its charm if it if it fully moves away from that. I here's my thing. I think, in my opinion, and we have joked on the show, but you may have different opinions now that they've lost that game of being that independent mailbox because of Instagram and also because yeah, of TikTok. Yeah, but I feel like it's so much more awkward to send a, a message through Instagram because, to be honest, I think it's it's mostly because there's more margin for error of like how you send the message, in my opinion. I definitely think that. I think, though, that Instagram has the base and has more of the future if they do a little UI change with that. Hmm. Honestly, if you had more of a mailbox, kind of like how Snapchat is, where it's like, here's this little square, as opposed to that little tiny bubble that you're kind of confused that it's starting. You know <laughs> what I mean? Did it upload? Is yeah. it going to upload? So, like, that's the weird part about it. But I don't know if Snapchat will change 
but it'll be interesting because I definitely think they're opening the door to it. So maybe if you're a content creator, you might want to take the risk and yeah. start making some Snapchat content if they pivot towards that direction. Well, it seems like they were for a, at a time hiring a bunch of content creators. They to, were, to they make. were. I mean, like Bahad Bahabi has the whole thing as we bad joke. baby. Yeah, we always joke and call her that. <laughs> uh, but no, I mean, she she has her own thing on Snapchat um, and. I, I think it's completely exclusive. I know Philip DeFranco does, and I know some other creators do. So they were trying to buy it for a while. Yeah, it's just going to be interesting in the same way that TikTok now has the whole creator fund thing, and they're really trying to get people to be creating all this engaging content. If Snapchat will be like, we're changing, kind of like what we talked about with Instagram, where they were like, we're not a we're not a photo company anymore. We're a video company. Mm-hmm. I wonder if they'll do that. Except they'll be like, we're a creative. Like you know, pre-planned created content company, yeah, I guess. not a user. But I mean, content the company. created content on Snapchat is so—it literally feels like I'm in a grocery store and yeah, looking it's at tabloids. tabloids. It's literally tabloids. So that's why I'd say they'd have to—they'd really have to figure out what they could do on their platform to make it kind of more TikTok centric, maybe, and have like that kind of organic nature to it, or. They're just going to have to polish the crap out of it. But I'm afraid that if they polish the crap out of it and they still have the format of Snapchat and vertical, if this sounds familiar to you, it was called Quibi and it failed into the <laughs> night. Like that's Rest, what it is. Just pour one out for Quibi. Right. <laughs> like, so that's what I'm talking about is so we'll, we'll have to see with Snapchat actually, you know, they're doing well and it seems like they're doing well from the creative content. So it's yeah. going to be interesting if they double down and pull an Instagram and go, we're changing our whole business model. Yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like they're on the right track, so hopefully they wouldn't switch completely. Yeah. But we will see. Well, moving on, uh, a little update to the Britney Spears story. So we got some tea here. So Britney's new lawyer, Matthew Rosengart, has submitted a 120-page petition to Los Angeles Superior Court Monday that argued that Jamie Spears, Britney's father, needs to be removed from her financial affairs immediately. He does. <laughs> Just throwing that out there. Yeah, going. Uh, <laughs> in the document, Rosengart stated that Jamie profitedly handsomely from his daughter's income by laying out some of the elements that her that of what she has earned money from. So according to Rosengart, Jamie took a percentage from her four-year Las Vegas residency Ooh. as he was her manager or as if he was her manager or agent, even though he doesn't hold these roles. <laughs> And another claim is that he took 1.5% of gross revenue from the merchandise earnings in Las Vegas, which is $2.1 million, and that he took 2.95% commission from Britney's Femme Fatale Tour in 2011, which is equatable to $500,000. He has also been paying himself $16,000 a month, and which is $2,000 more than his daughter receives, plus 2000 for office expenses. So Rosengard has also said that Jamie brought in multiple expensive teams for his own legal representation, even though Brittany has paid for all of it. One firm, Holland and Knight, charged the estate $1.3 million from October 2020 to June 2021 to represent Jamie. So, Colin, how are you feeling about this? Uh, I mean... Is this not a good enough example to get this man at least not to be her conservator? <laughs> yeah, like I'm, we we can have you know I don't think she should be in a conservatorship, but at minimum her father should not be the conservator. And we talked about that a little bit with our guest Rachel Gutman a while ago. But this is even more evidence. Also, if you want an example of what I was talking about about how expensive merch is, one point five percent. Sounds so tiny. Sounds so tiny. And it was $2.1 million. Yeah. That means that that's upwards of $200 million in just merch. Yeah. Which is in, it's which insane. Is crazy. And so. Well, I think my biggest thing is he's getting paid monthly more money than she is. Yeah. 
And it's like, plus I, the I, office expense. I know what argument he's going to go down to. He's going to go, well, I have to administer her state. I have to do this. I have to go places. She doesn't really, I have to take care of her and do all this stuff. And I go, yeah, okay. But, but it's you're her, her father. money. <laughs> you're her father. You're trying to take care of her out of love, not for the paycheck. Yeah. Like, so that's kind of what's what I'm feeling with this. Again, they did hit it right on the nail. This is what a manager basically would do or, or an agent. And so, I mean, we've talked about it on the show before a manager can have upwards sometimes of almost to 10, sometimes 15, 20% mm-hmm. of someone's gross revenue for an amount of years. But guess what? The manager is in charge of their career. Yeah. It's in charge of mapping it out just because, you know, you claim that you're getting Brittany there and back does not entitle you to 1.5% of the gross revenue of, of merchandise from that because yeah. you, you didn't have any participation in well, that. It Some other team probably did put that together from what I've been reading. It, it seems like they haven't even been in the same room for over a year. Yeah. That's even worse. I have seen claims where they have not been together because I bet they're, I, you know, I bet if I was Brittany, I would want to just, you know, just destroy like literally just beat beat the hell out of him you know what i mean if i saw him like that I, this man is her tormentor this man is like literally the reason that she's in the state of being in such duress that she is right now yeah and so i it doesn't surprise me i'm kind of glad that he isn't i mean but at the same time i don't want her to be in a conservative conservatorship because she's a functioning adult and this is way over bounds in my opinion. Yeah. But I definitely think, uh, Brittany needs help, but help from, you know, people that are in her court. I think rather than people in it for the paycheck, which right. is, which and is hard to find anybody. You would that. be surprised about how many, you know, we talked about uh family and children, uh, acts before Britney Spears came up, Mickey Mouse club, all that kind of stuff. Same deal. You'd be surprised how many parents changed their tune, and change how they, you know, show affection to their child and how they treat their child based on the paycheck that that child's bringing home. Yeah, because now it's not a kid; it's a it's a workhorse. Right. It's it's their way out of there, or yeah. some, you know. And I mean, so I I feel terrible about this. I hate that she has to pay for his defense. I think that's insane. Yeah. But that's just me. Because I, you know, you're getting paid sixteen thousand. But they're 000, family calling. You're getting paid sixteen thousand dollars a month. Then you're paying for it. Yeah. If it's going to your account, you're getting paid for it. But I know that it's not that way. He's got some expense card or something like that mm-hmm. that's got her name on it, and that's and he's probably just an authorized user or something. So absolutely. That's, well, I that's was insane. gonna I was gonna ask you which way you were leaning in this case, but I think it's pretty pretty clear. I, you know, I just think that. In, I, I think at the bare minimum, I kind of put it out there. I do not think her father should be the conservator at all. At bare minimum of like, if this trial ended tomorrow, I think that's what should be. I think she needs, if she was still in a conservatorship and the court deemed her in a conservatorship, she needs someone who's trusted and honestly, a business manager who has experience in conservatorship. Yeah who is, you know, takes their fee is legally bound to take a certain amount of fee and that's it. And they don't have a relationship that's, you know, construed with family. It's a business and mental health relationship that's more constructive because it has those bounds. And again, at the whole end of it, that's my minimum and maximum. I need, I would like her to just not be in a conservatorship. She's a functioning adult. I think she can handle herself, at least give her the chance to. Mm-hmm. I don't think she, at least, again, we've talked about it with Rachel Gutman a, a previous episode, is we don't know everything, and I believe that. But from the way in the outside, it's pretty hard to misconstrue that this grown woman cannot take care of herself. Yeah. So that's that's kind of my take at the end of the day. I just, at the bare minimum, I think, you know, Courts are messy and terrible and long and they don't end up well, but that's my minimum as I think her father should not be in her finances. Yeah. Pain is only legal. Right. So for sure. Well, Colin, it's our favorite part of the show. Yes. Where we get to talk about the music we love. And, uh, I'm going to start out with, uh, my music today. Okay. Let's hear it. Uh, I, uh, I've been listening a lot to, uh, Tanuka Chan, 
Uh, her record Sundays is amazing. Um, and also Choir Boy, Gathering Swans. What's the vibe of both of those? So uh, Tanuka Chan is kind of like post-punk a little bit. It's like pretty heavy. Uh, I really love the bass riffs, especially oh, because okay. they kind of... They're they're very like fuzzy and like in your face, but it, like really like big muff pedal all the way. Yeah, up. yeah, absolutely. And the, but like they're the melodies of the guitar and um, her vocal melodies uh, really mesh well with it. Okay. Um, and then uh, Choir Boy is he kind of sounds like a Choir Boy, <laughs> but uh, he he also does a lot of like eighties themed kind of style. So it's but it's like it's tasteful, right? It's not like it kind of has that like hit, hit you in your face with it, you know, like cool synths and stuff like that. But it like, I don't know, it just has that warmth that like Tears for Fears kind of had. Oh, okay. Um, and so I love that. And our favorite from way back, I've been listening to uh, Frau Frau Details. Um, you, you remember that song, Let Go? I don't think so. I'll have to check it okay. out Okay, I wish I could play it. I wish we wouldn't get DMC well, in I, right now. Well, you know. They but, deserve to get paid, and I don't have the money to pay them. So. Yeah, that's that's true. But um, great song, great record. Everyone should check it out. So I've been, I, you know, I've been on my dad rock shit as always. So I'll give you one of those <laughs> for my listeners because I know you always you always want those, right? Now, uh, one I've been listening to that I forgot about because I was rewatching the show Freaks and Geeks, and uh, I remembered it. And it's from Billy Joel's Fifty Second Street record. It's called Rosalinda's Eyes which I think if you listen to it, what's interesting about it is the space, Mm -hmm. which is like not as common in some music that's especially popular music because that record was very big for Billy Joel. But the space of like the actual perceived, like how big everything is and the length of difference in, you know, note to note isn't, it's just very strange and not seen anymore, which is what I like about it. But it's a straightforward, like little love song. And then, uh, I've actually been listening to another podcast called that we've, I enjoy, which is tiny meat gang. But I was like, I need to check out their music. Cause I never listened to their music before. If you guys know Cody co and Noel Miller from YouTube, you may know who I'm talking about, but I was like, I need to check out their music. Cause I like one of my favorite things is to listen to bad music, but I was pleasantly surprised mm-hmm. at how great their music is. And they like, do it so effortlessly. It's mostly rap and uh, it's just really good. Well done together. I really like their new song daddy with a uh, Quinn XC. I, I think it's XCII, and uh, th- it's just really funny. And if you guys have listened to the show for a long time, I really like funny kind of songs that just poke fun at everything. And the whole song's premise is literally, I'm not, um, <laughs> they said, I changed my bio from daddy to father. <laughs> Cause that's my vibe. It's not daddy. It's father, which uh, I think is so funny. Um, but yeah, they got a lot of good ones. You also may know the, uh, walk which is, was huge on TikTok for a minute. And then it's so funny. If you look up the videos, which the music videos are really good for him. But if you look up the videos, it's just full of people going, I never knew this was Cody and Noel who did this <laughs> song. And it's just weird to think about the, those boys are very multi-talented and they do it really well. And honestly, it comes down to production. So I think whoever's behind the scenes on that, it might be some for Spock. I don't know. Well, uh, um, uh, Cody made a lot of the beats himself in the beginning. But yeah, sure. but it, it's really well mixed too, which I you know enjoy as an engineer myself. And so that's the thing about it. It's like if you have a really like catchy song and then it's really well mixed and really well produced, then it kind of doesn't matter like what's going on in the song as much. Mm-hmm. If it's like, Oh, that word was weird or something like that. <laughs> like, it's like, no, it's, it's just great on its own. Yeah. So that's kind of been the vibe, you know, well, very sick. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of the biz tape. We're here every week. You can follow us at the biz tape everywhere, or you can email us the biz tape podcast at gmail.com. If you like the show, be sure to support us. Be sure to rate us. Be sure to, I don't know, tag us and stuff. We want to see your cats. So just let us know. That was weird.
Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Check the back seat. Check the back seat. All right, come here. Check the back seat. Gets in your head, right? Good. Because every year, dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the back seat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Pitbull. I think that education is the real revolution because as much as we speak about all the problems that there is in society and the world today, my mother's always told me, son, don't worry, the world's always been coming to an end. Don't let it scare you out of living. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 